Good morning. Thank you, John. I know. Adam, thanks for this Bible. We'll be reading from Psalm chapter 5. If you're able, please join. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I do pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I will prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell in you. The boastful shall not stand in your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. And those who love your name may exalt in you. For you bless the righteousness, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. This is a word of God. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Uh, if, you've, if you've been here before, um, you're probably hearing 12 verses and wondering, how are we going to make it through 12 verses? The writer of this psalm is David. Um, we, we hear about David quite a bit. I think sometimes maybe we have in the backs of our minds some perspective on David. Maybe there's some things that we believe about David, and maybe those things are unchecked. Um, and so when we, we come to um, a passage like this, it was funny, this morning in, in uh, Sunday school as we're going through spiritual gifts, um, Jim mentioned there's, there's lots of folks that would take the left half of the Bible, the Old Testament, if you will, and just kind of put it away, right, and say, well, that was a God of wrath, now God is a God of love, but nothing could be further uh, from the truth. I mean, I guess there are some things that could be further from the truth, but that doesn't make that any more true. Um, Hebrews 13.8 reveals that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and so we're not to be led away by diverse and strange teachings. What does that mean? That truth doesn't wander Truth is true. Truth is always true. Truth is consistent. And so as we look at the scriptures from Genesis through Revelation, all 66 books, we find that they're internally consistent. They tell the same story. They do not disagree. And we're not to hide from it either. In fact, scriptures themselves tell us that we should test all things to see if they're so. Paul celebrated the church at Berea because they took what he said, they compared it to the word to see if it was so. We're to be not ashamed we're to be informed by the word. We're to unashamedly go after it. And where we feel like we find friction, we should dive in even more and be ready to be surprised and excited by the word of God. And so when we come to a book like the book of Psalms, oftentimes different writers across the book, it's not chronological, it's compiled. And so we can ask interesting questions like, well, this is written by David. It says it is. When did he write it? What was going on? And I have great news for you in Psalm chapter 5. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's kind of no clues in a sense into what was going on. Um, lots, of, lots of people kind of 
grasp at the air to figure out what it might be. Some would say he was writing about Absalom. Others, maybe he's writing during a time of, of peace and reflecting back on calamity, thinking about that, praying through that. It wasn't during his exile. We see verse 7, he, he could enter the house of worship. He could enter into the temple, so he's not wandering around. Um, maybe, as we mentioned, it might be during the time of Absalom as a reflection back to a point in time. Uh, but no matter, David's life was not short of opportunity to think back about times where he was surrounded by the wicked, times where people around him had transgressed. His life had plenty of strife and opportunity. Again, Jim this morning you know, mentioned that we're, we're to be thankful in all situations, thankful to God that he gives us breath and that he gives us life. Um, constantly reminded, uh, Pastor John and I have both mentioned, constantly reminded, uh, I don't know if your sleep cycles are like mine, I hope not. Uh, generally, I see three in the morning, and then again four in the morning, and then again six in the morning, and then I just give up and start drinking coffee. But there's that time when you fall asleep. It's actually the best time. Right as you fall asleep, and in the back of your mind, you're like, yes, I'm about to go out. And then everything's great. Like That's like my favorite time, just so you know. But from that moment until you wake up, you are not doing anything to keep your body animated. Your lungs draw in air, right? Your body stays resuscitated. Some of you choke more than others while that's going on, right? Some of you need a little elephant machine. You know, you kind of look like you, you just stepped out of Top Gun. Look like Goose, Maverick back there. But there's nothing that we do to keep ourselves animated. The mind creates electricity to fire off neurons and synaptic gaps have little electric currents flowing across them so that your body will respond and life will continue. That's God. That's God that does that, the creator and sustainer. The book of Colossians says that he holds all things together by the power of his word, which means if he stopped, all things wouldn't exist. They don't even have to like explode, right? We know cool guys don't look at explosions. God wouldn't even have to burn it all. It could just not be. He created ex nihilo, if you want a 25-cent word. He created from nothing. It's not like he started from a pile of dirt. He did, but he made the dirt first, formed it up into a man, breathed into his nostrils, made Adam, took a rib from his side, made his wife, Eve. But started with nothing. God created ex nihilo. There was nothing before God created things. This is incredible. So much more interesting than anything else in all of life is God creation, and then extending far down the chain from that, that he, forget that he loves us, that he gives any iota for us whatsoever is incredible. And so David, the psalmist, has lived a pretty wild life, and we're going to look at that today, because I think it's really important to know who David is in the book of Psalms. So many assumptions that we make about David. I think one of the things that I noticed the most about David, and especially kind of diving in recently in, in, in this study for today's message, is he's got such a great ability to write about these kinds of things because he spent so much time fascinated with himself, full of pride. Heroic David, who maybe we think of him more frequently, heroic David only comes about in these moments where he's focused on God, where there's these reflections of his trust in God, where God is made the hero, where David is dependent, where David is reliant, and where David is a follower of God, admitted by grace, just like us. And so we can be encouraged to be not the hero, to be a follower, to be a follower, a worshiper, trusting, reliant. As we said this morning, in all circumstances, we're satisfied by God. It's not the circumstance that makes us satisfied. I'm not satisfied because my circumstances are good or dissatisfied because they're bad, necessarily. Like Paul would say, I've learned to be rejoiceful in little and in much. And I would suggest that sometimes much is harder to be rejoiceful in. Because much never feels like much. You know, there's always somebody else to look up at that's got a little bit more. And if we had it, maybe then we'd be happy, right? Maybe if I could send four rockets up to space and hook up to the space system up there, maybe then I'd be happy. 
Like Elon's happy. A lot of kids seems to have these days. And so we're going to see encouragement from David in the Psalms to find the secret to his successes amid his many failures, which is a return and a reliance on God. So let's look a little bit at David before we start. We're going to spend some time. One of my favorite books in all the scriptures, and, and I will say when I first, I don't know, as a career, as a church-going person, I think for the first time I heard the scriptures taught, perhaps they always were around me, uh, was in a Calvary chapel. Um, and it was in the study of the book of 1 Samuel. And I remember having this aha kind of a moment where everything just struck, in a moment, everything became completely clear. And I said, oh my gosh, this is real. These are real people in a real timeline, in a real place. It can all be verified. This just tells one story because so long I had just heard encouragements to be better, encouragements to make every day be a Friday, encouragements to live a better life, encouragements to do better at the office, encouragements to tell people about Jesus so that they could try him and see if Jesus works for them. And so little about Scripture, so little from God's living, breathing word that's sharper than any two-edged sword that can divide between the division of bone and marrow, soul and spirit. The only offensive weapon listed in Scripture for the believer is the word. Everything else is defense. But so quickly we want to be on the offense with anything other than the word. Maybe you've, you've seen inspirational quotes uh, inspired by David. Slay your Goliath. I found a book after one quick, easy search just looking for, I was looking for maybe a coffee cup, which is funny because I have a coffee cup that has a picture of David and Goliath on it, I guess. I don't know what they look like, but, you know, work with me. Uh, and one says Goliath, and then above the other one it says, not you. <laughs> one of my favorite coffee cups. So I found this book on Amazon. You can find it there too. I would suggest you don't, but you can. It's called Slay Your Giants, Life Lessons from the Story of David and Goliath. Here's how it's described. Draw from the biblical story of David and Goliath, authoring, offering readers inspiration and encouragement for facing and defeating the spiritual giants in their lives, such as grief, depression, procrastination, stress, Perfectionism, anger, resentment, jealousy, lust, and loneliness. One reviewer said this book is very well written. Mahoney gives us direction and advice in dealing with some of the problems of life that keep us from living the abundant life Jesus came to give us. I am using this book in a study of about 20 persons, and all of us give it high reviews. Your giant-killing hero, David, in 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at first, we're going to be all over 1 and 2 Samuel, but we'll look first at 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. This is where we first, not first, but this is an early look at our giant-killing hero, David. This is where he is actually selected to be a musician to play for King Saul. Here's what we read. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servants said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. Pause. The lyre is what you see the little chubby uh, diaper angel babies playing. You ever wonder why they put diapers on angels? Faculty control issues? I don't know. Um... You ever wonder why people, if they see ghosts, they're always wearing clothes? Skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he'll play it, and you'll be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. 
Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered into his service. And Saul loved him greatly. Sure, you remove that kind of darkness from someone with a little liar. I'm into you. Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whatever harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it in his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. All right, so we've got David working in the field. He's now been chosen to kind of play for the king on the little... There's a little liar. He's been chosen to play for the king, to live with the king, to be the armor bearer of the king, quickly finding favor. We see this all over scripture. Those who are of the Lord find quick favor. We see that in Joseph. We see it all over. David is the youngest of eight. Big family. Born to Jesse of the tribe of Judah. This is the tribe that would make that would that would produce David, of course, but also Solomon. This is where the Messiah would come through. This is the line that the Messiah would come through. And so following this story to get to our hero David, who slays, of course, of course, Goliath, we skip to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And in 1 Samuel 17, we see the Philistines. The Philistines are not a God-fearing people. Um, they're mentioned first in Genesis chapter 10, verse 14, in the, in the story of the nations, um, when God helped the um, Israelites leave the capture of the Egyptians in Exodus 13, 17, he specifically takes them by a different route so that they don't have to encounter the Philistines because the Philistines are scary people. And that can sound goofy. Oh, you have the Lord. Why would you be afraid? But come on, you've been afraid. And if, if you want to play the tough guy role, I'll, it's the same test that we always do for the tough guy role. We turn off all the lights in the building. We have you start from the basement on this side and walk slowly through. With the, I promise you, you'll feel really uncomfortable halfway through. I feel fine. I've never run through the basement like a scared child with the lights off, but you will. The Philistines are a terrifying, nasty people, worshiping all kinds of strange gods, including Baalzebub, and they're ready for battle. In, in the second verse, we see that of, of 1 Samuel 7. I love this, by the way. Okay, this is very key to what's going on. This is very key to understanding who David is in this moment. In the second verse, we see that Saul and the men of Israel were gathered in the valley to fight. The men of Israel are gathered to fight against these terrifying Philistines. It's a very significant situation. This is all hands on deck. We're going to fight the Philistines, these insane, warmongering people. Everyone who's able to help defend is there. The line is being established and all of the men are present. And we meet Goliath in verse 4. And he's described as a huge bad man from verses 5 through 8. They spend a lot of time describing how terrifying this person is, how big he is, how powerful he is. We find out that he's been a warrior since he was a small child. This is a bad situation. And then in verse 11, we read, When Saul and all of Israel heard the words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. But David was there, right? Why would they be afraid? Big, tough David. Not only is David not there, his three oldest brothers are there. And when, when he does finally show up as kind of a messenger... In 1 Samuel 17, 41 through 44, here, here's what we see what David is, is doing. Actually, in, in verse 14, we see that David, the youngest, the three eldest, followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So all the men of Israel are gathered. David is running errands for everyone. 
That tells you everything you need to know. Because if you're lining up in front of a terrifying enemy, uh, are you going to let someone who's actually thought that they might be useful run back and forth doing errands? No. You send someone who you don't expect to be very helpful back and forth to do these kinds of an errand. So while all the men of Israel are gathered to defend, David's going back and forth tending to the sheep and carrying messages. Um, when, when I was in the army, there's this thing that they do. It's, uh, it's called nuclear biological chemical, NBC. And when they think there's some of that going on, they, they say, gas, gas, gas. Everybody puts on a gas mask, right? You've got to stand. They call it MOP4, Mission-Oriented Protective Posture 4. These goofball boots, the hottest clothes in the world that never happens when it's cold. And you're wearing this mask. And there's a specific way that everybody starts to take all that stuff off. Okay, first you look around. You say, are there birds in the air, right? So maybe things are okay. And then what you do is you pick one person and you have them take their stuff off first and you observe them for 30 minutes. <laughs> the funny thing was, and, and one of the units that I was in was always the same guy. That tells you everything you need to know. When you're that guy, when you're, the, you're literally the experiment, we're watching you to see if you start freaking out, if foam comes out of your face, right? we're going to let you hang out for like 30 minutes and see if anything bad happens to you. You, in that moment, know that you are the most expendable person around. This is David. It's not helpful in war. This is David. And we'll see that as the, the Philistine here reacts to him. Goliath, is, what, who is this? This is a child, a cute little red-headed boy. Sorry. He's not scary. They look at him and say, that's a, that's a small ginger. <laughs> Why so much time on David? Because as a nation, there's something about us. And forget as a nation, as people, as humans, as, as human beings, we're hero worshipers. There's something about us. We're just here. We're always looking for someone to idolize or something to idolize. Don't believe me. Go to the grocery store. Right next to that magazine where they just found the Batboy's skull for like the 18th time, National Enquirer, if that's still a thing. It, it's just magazines after magazines of cool recipes, I'll admit, I want some of those, of person worship. Like, what's happening to Johnny Depp? I don't care. Um, I, just, I, I don't recognize famous people. We used to live right outside of Los Angeles. I remember one time I was like, I had gotten a new job. We were celebrating this new job and I'm like, man, the service here is really slow. And they're like, that's because Hulk Hogan is sitting behind you. You didn't notice. <sighs> didn't even notice. Here he was, his wife, ex-wife maybe, had a dog in P.F. Chang's. Why? What happens if I bring a dog in P.F. Chang's? I'm out. Hulk Hogan brings a dog into P.F. Chang's. He's in because he's part of the hero worship thing. Maybe you heard recently about the ghost of Kiev shot down 40 planes in Russia at a time when only 25 planes have been taken down and mostly from the surface. We feel better when we have a hero, somebody to look up to, like Wag the Dog, right? We feel better when we have an old shoe, something to rally around. We have to be really careful of doing that with David because that's not who David is. What we see in David is that the secret to his success amid his many failures is a reliance on God. And that's what we see when David walks up. It's not that he's a tough guy. It's that he trusts God completely in this moment. David is the anti-hero. We're supposed to see straight through David and see God, but we see David, which is wild because it's the opposite of the point. Nothing could be further from the truth. We're supposed to see how powerful God is in this guy. We see across the scriptures that God chooses the foolish things of the world that confound the wise. I think of it like a dodgeball game. You know, remember dodgeball? I don't even know if you can still play dodgeball, but if you played it before, you can still hear the ring of that ball, right? Have you ever been kind of touched upside the face by that thing? It has this really high-pitched, singy ring to it. God's team would look horrible. Like, I'm right-handed. One of the things that I love to do is throw left-handed because of how bad it looks and feels. This would be the dodgeball team of believers against the world. God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. 
This is David. It is foolish to pick David to battle the Philistine, and everyone knows it. Except for us, we've forgotten because we've elevated him to hero status. When David relied upon himself, it resulted in defiled marriages, murder. It resulted in his own son, Absalom, wanting to kill him. And, and that, that got up real shaky, real fast. Read into why was Absalom so upset. It's because David's other son, Amon, had raped their half-sister, Tamar. There were times when David pretended to be crazy and ran from his enemies. He hid from Saul, hid from Absalom. It's like the hide-and-seek champion of the world. This is our hero. And the story of Goliath, this is the psalmist that we're reading from right now. When we look at David with Goliath, we see his heroic side. But at the same time, we see David in this scenario, as a dependent worshiper of God engaged in a prayerful life, this is the key to any of his success. This is why, even though David, responsible for some just abysmal, complete and absolute moral failures, where you're just looking at the situation going, dude, really? Paul would say in Acts chapter 13, Verses 13 through 24, Paul and, and Barnius now are, uh, Barnius, <laughs> he's a new guy, you haven't heard of him yet. Uh, also Barnabas, they're, they're at Antioch. In verse 13 we read, now Paul and his companions set sail. They came to Perga and Pamphylia. And here, here's what happens, right? They're, they're getting ready to testify about some things. After reading from the law, reading about the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Verse 16, Paul stands up, taking the opportunity. Paul says, I have some encouragement. He stands up, he motions with his hand, he says, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. With uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. After destroying seven nations from the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. Now think about that in the timeline of American history. right? Sometimes we think we're so important. Churches across America today, there's banners with eagles soaring, and, and blessed is the nation who's... God is the Lord. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Paul ties all of this in that Davidic line back to the tribe of Benjamin, back to Jesse, where Saul came through. And you look back at all these men and you go, my gosh, what a train wreck of calamity. So let's read the Psalms. Let's read from David starting in this first verse of the fifth psalm. To the choir master, for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I do pray. David talks about his passionate approach to God in prayer. It's not some rote prayer. He's not just reading something off of a prayer card. He's not doing what we talked about this morning in Sunday school, which is sometimes you hear people praying and you're like, wait, are you talking to me or are you talking to God? I feel like you're instructing me in this moment. Prayer is supposed to be from you to God. What, what are you doing? 
No, he's crying out to God. When have you described yourself as groaning? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Groaning is guttural. Groaning is deep. Groaning isn't passive. Groaning isn't just talking about things that don't matter too much. Groaning happens when it's the the depths of plight and you're bringing it before God. David's talking of a passionate approach to God in prayer. Consider my groaning and consider my crying. There's similarities across the Psalms. Psalm 39.3 My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Now, we've talked before about genres of Scripture. It's very important to know what we're reading. This is poetic kinds of language. Was the man's heart physically aflame? I sure hope not. This is talking. This is trying to use language to convey things that really aren't easily conveyed. Um, and, and God gives us language and takes advantage of language in his words so that we can understand him better. In, in a book on the Trinity by uh, James White called The Forgotten Trinity, he, he describes this scenario as like a toddler. Most of you have seen a toddler before. If not, we're producing a few. You can play with them and poke at them. It's fun. You know, and they cry and you give them to their parents. My bad to Miles this morning with the helicopter scenario. He talks about describing the Trinity. God describes himself as male and as Trinity, as three in one. And he describes himself using language. And so he uses terms that we might understand, like if a toddler comes to you and says, well, what is a graham cracker like? And you're like, well, geez, this is really hard because you don't have a lot of life experience, small friend. And so you try to say, well, you've had things that are sweet before, like candy, and you understand what crunchy is, right? Because you break mom and dad's objects all the time. It's kind of like that. And so God accommodates us through his language, through experiences that maybe we've had to try to enable us to understand him who's so otherworldly. And so when we read the Psalms, this genre of poetry, it speaks to us deeply. We shouldn't hide from it and we shouldn't be scared of it. This is how God is accommodating to us to understand how we should approach him. Groaning and crying, this means we don't hide who we are from God. It's an impossible game anyway. What happens immediately after the fall, they realize they're naked and they're ashamed. And Adam tries to hide from God. Now, being the first person who tried to hide, it was probably really bad. Right, like he's probably like because it's not like he grew up playing hide and seek. This is his first shot at hiding from the all-knowing God of creation. So he's probably like right against the tree, like this. But he doesn't know. There's no tricks yet. There's no hiding behind a rock. That concept isn't there. God comes to him and he says, "Adam, where are you?" And what's that question? Where are you? Is it about location? Is God confounded by his optimal hiding skill? Or is that question for Adam? Adam, where are you? What's going on in you right now? Why why is this happening to you, Adam? Like sometimes you ask your kids to consider what's going on. Why'd you do that? I know why you did it. You were mad at your brother because your brother is frankly annoying. But really think about it. Why did you do that? Why did you react in that way? Why was your answer to hit him in his mouth? Because you know what's going to happen. It's going to hit you back, and it's going to be a fight, and then mom's going to look at me, and then I have to come in the room. Then it gets different. Where were you? Why did you do that? Consider what was happening. And so the psalmist speaks in these kinds of terms. My heart became hot within me. I mused, and the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. Notice in Psalm 5, the specific asks of these prayers, they're not present. They're just talking about the purpose of the psalmist, the approach of the psalmist. They're describing feelings mixed with words. 
deeply passionate prayers. This is where David is successful. Is in a life like this that's oriented towards God, that seeks after God, that brings his problems to God. David that tries to solve his own problems gets weird really, really fast. This is the king over Israel coming to God in a loud, crying, praying. And he says, my king and my God. Kind of, kind of haunting towards Thomas' own testimony of Jesus. My Lord and my God. He has a very healthy understanding of who God is and who is rightful king. If you want to take some notes and look across the Psalms, you can look at Psalms 10, 16, Psalm 40, 44, verse 4, and so many more. People want a king. People want a king. It was kind of referenced earlier, but in 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 through 22, we read this, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king that will reign over them. So Samuel told them all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king that will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands of commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers he will take the rest of your fields and your vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain. He's upped the game since then, perhaps. And of all of your vineyards and give it to his officers and servants. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be a slave. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So pause for a moment before you look at verse 19. If you just heard that, what's your next move? Is it back off from the king idea and return to God? Verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there should be a king over us that we may be like all the nations. And then our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice, make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man into his city. David knows who the rightful king is. Psalm 5, 3-6, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He's coming to God in the morning. It's a consistent theme across Scripture, certainly consistently commanded in the Old Testament, consistently demonstrated in the Old Testament. You see the Numbers 28.4. It's consistent with Job's approach, Job 1.5. Job was really concerned for his adult children, which perhaps was a very good thing, knowing what's going to happen in chapter 2. They would pray for them in case they had sinned against God. He would pray for their forgiveness Pray that they came to know God. In verse 4, we see why he's prayerful in the morning, because God does not delight in the wicked. 
because those who lie and are bloodthirsty and deceitful. Reminds me, the, the, the first passage from Scripture I ever taught from was a psalm. It was Psalm 73. And in Psalm 73, right in verse 17, there's a, a split and a change of direction. Verse 16, so it kind of starts like this, but when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This is a man who's, who's talking about being exhausted by looking at the world around him. Exhausted that the world around him seems to be so confused by what he knows to be true of God. He knows to be true about life. And they just seem so successful. They seem to have everything so easy. Even though they're going hard after lies, even though they're going hard after falsehoods, even though they sin against God, even though they live as a complete affront to God. Verse 17, after feeling a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. You can almost feel the tension come off the shoulders. It's not that he's celebrating what their end is. It's realizing who God is and that this life that feels like it's everything, this life whose tensions and churning constantly begs and demands for our attention is nothing. It's but a vapor. It only exists because God sustains it. That's why my, my favorite way to read the book of Job is mentally by reading past, by cutting out the conversation between Satan and Job, or excuse me, between God and Satan. What you get is the beginning of the book says that Job is the most upright man in the land of Oz. He had all of these possessions and it was wonderful. And then one day his servants came and effectively pronounced his entire family dead. All of his children dead. All of his possessions gone. And so coming to God in the morning, being prayerful in the morning, because God does not delight in the wicked. It's coming to God in prayer and saying, shape my day, provide a level path for me. I don't want to live a life that's contrary to you. I don't want to be led in different directions that don't honor you. I don't want to go after things that aren't of you. Praying before going out into a wild world around us. I wonder how often we consider not God and his character, but the perceived strength of the people around us or the world around us. Because that kind of a perspective can, can feel all-consuming. Forgetting who God is. And so then we start to react to the perceived strength of people around us and their perceived power as opposed to knowing what the psalmist said. What the psalmist said, who, when he thought of how to understand the world around him, it was a wearisome task. Maybe you feel that way sometimes when you watch the news. This world feels wearisome. But then you go into the sanctuary of God, and you realize that this life is but a vapor. Why did David defeat Goliath? Here's the key to the whole thing. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 26, B. I made up the B. That just means somewhere in the middle. Here's his reaction to this scenario with the Philistine. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He didn't come in thinking he was strong or thinking he was powerful. He came in knowing God was strong and that God was powerful. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to stand against the Lord's people? That's the secret. And nobody could really understand it. Everybody wanted him to kind of, hey, whoa, keep it down, bro. Those are beer muscles. If you cut from that scene and pick up in verses 45 through 47, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you've defiled. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. 
and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that the, all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. David trusted in God's providence. He knew that God would prevail. He trusted God. That's what we see in this prayer, picking back up in Psalm 5, verse 7. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in the righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. How does God, or excuse me, how does David enter God's presence? Through the abundance of steadfast love, just like you and I do. We're seeing in David's psalm the secret to his few successes among many failures his return to reliance on God and right perspective on God. Not fearful of what's around him, not trusting in his own power and his own strength, that gets him in trouble. It's when he's settled on God and God's character. We see it in Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Why? Because we approach in Christ. We're found in Christ. Our righteousness is Christ's. One reformer described it as a snow-covered dunghill. That's what we are when we become redeemed, when we become renewed, when we become saved. It's not that we're particularly redeemable. We're not. It's that God, by His grace, allows us to receive Jesus' own righteousness as ours. It's alien righteousness, if you want to sound Cool. I think that makes you cool, saying alien righteousness. Psalm 5, verses 9 and 10. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their innermost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. David is fairly unrestrained in his prayer to God, making clear asks There's an interesting story to cross-reference here in 2 Samuel chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Kind of, when you read that, key in on verse 10 from Psalm 5. Make them bear their guilt, O God, let them fall by their own counsels. David is shifting off of his concern for those around him, their perceived power, their perceived strength, their perceived capabilities over them. And he's shifting that concern. And, and that shift that we see, it, it causes a, a rejoice. Look at verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those, who you that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now I know we, we spent a decent amount of time looking at David, looking across 1 Samuel, a little bit at 2 Samuel. I pray that you were encouraged a little bit by David's life. That someone whose life was this wild, that someone whose life was marked by many more failures than successes, really, could be described as being a man after God's own heart. Someone who could return to God and bring his deepest woes to God. I pray that that would mark us as well, that we would rely on God. 
when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he encourages us to approach God and thank him for our daily bread, to ask him for our daily bread, to remind us that we're completely needful of God in the most basic of levels. Is that necessarily true? Like, do you, you need to go to God and pray for your daily bread? You probably feel like you don't. It doesn't take much for all that to come undone. A few shipments of missing fertilizer from the Netherlands, a crazy man in Russia, can all come undone fairly quickly. I said earlier, it's easier to rejoice in little than in much. But I pray for us that we learn to rejoice in much as well, because we are surrounded by much. So how do we maintain ourselves as worshipers? Because it's so, I mean, we have so much, it's so easy to be discontent in much. How do we guard against that? Psalm 5, 1 and 2. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I do pray. What if we prayed hotly to God for our everything, for even for our desire for God? God, make me want you more. Make me be dissatisfied by the things of this life and only encouraged by you. It's what we see in David's psalm is the secret to his few successes amid his many failures are a return to a reliance on God. David, who trusted God with the Philistine, David, who needed no ill-fitting armor, who needed only a few stones, to being David who was afraid of his own son to running and hiding from a circumstance of his own making. Let's be like the prayerful, trusting David after God's own heart. But to be that requires a purposeful return to God, a starting of our day focused on the main thing and trusting as Christ taught us to pray. I want to encourage you to do three things this week. One, read Psalm 5. I believe that it is a call to a life of prayer. Next, read 2 Samuel 17 and that story of falling by your own counsel. And then, Matthew 6, 5 through 8, Jesus is teaching us to pray and live that out this week. Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much that you've given us your word God, we thank you that we can rely on it to know true truth. We thank you, God, that we have it so that we know how to rightly approach you, so that we know that we're safe to bring to you the depths of our groaning, crying souls. God, that we can come to you with our every burden. And God, we thank you for the example of David that is an example of your power on a broken, fallen man who is still describable as one after your own heart. Would you make us that, God? Would you make us be a people after your own heart? We love you and we praise you in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. Please stand and join us as we worship through song.